Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome, listeners, to another episode of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm Patch, and with me, as always, is my best friend and co-host, Aaron. Hello, buddy. How are you tonight, man? I'm good. How are you from literally the exact opposite part of the United States for me tonight? It's it's nice. Um, if you don't know, as of this recording, I'm in Tampa for some business, and it's been an interesting trip to get here from Little Rock, what normally would take six hours by plane, took 16 because of weather in Houston, if that makes sense. I don't try to explain the airlines. I just fly on them. You are actually, I think, at pretty much the most distance point between, like, from Seattle to Tampa. I mean, it doesn't get much much more than that. Maybe Miami, but yeah. The joys of the no. internet, man. It's like we're instant, you know, this instant talking. It's really I would good. tell people that you got... You got stuck behind some alligators crossing the road or something crazy. We'll go with that. We'll <laughs> go with that. But the rental car place gave me a, a Dodge Challenger, so I'm okay. So anyway, <laughs> well, this week we are continuing our summer love coverage with one of Richard Linklater's early writing and directing projects, Dazed and Confused. I came to the party late on this viewing, but not as late as my counterpart here. So I'm definitely excited to know what he thinks. That being said, this is a movie that debuted in 1993. It's something that it's a movie that you should be warned of spoilers. If you haven't seen it, please go see it. Join the conversation like always. But this is uh, this is your warning that everything after this is going to be spoiler filled territory. Aaron, let's get started with our one word takeaways. Do you want to kick us off? All right. All right. All right. That okay. That'll. <laughs> That's not my one word takeaway, but now I'm kind of feeling like it should, that should have been, been your one word takeaway. It was all right. Actually, all right. it can right. kind of fit to be honest. I'm changing it right here okay. on the spot. Okay. It's changing from unrelatable to all right, because this movie was all right. All, all right. right. All right. <laughs> this <laughs> is not going to be a podcast where we just keep saying we are not right. done with that at all. Okay. okay. <laughs> well, in a sense, honestly, though, the title does work great for me, I think, because I was both dazed watching this and confused afterwards, um, specifically as to why this is such a highly praised and beloved film. I unfortunately found it to be extremely boring and unaffecting. Not much happens at all. There are many characters, and I couldn't keep straight who was who. And while I feel like Linkletter nailed the time period and the depiction of what a night might have looked like for some kids in the 70s, I was honestly left wondering what the point of it all was. There are things I did like, performances, some of the dialogue, despite not really connecting with it, and the soundtrack. But overall, I was only mildly entertained and not at all blown away like I'd kind of been hoping for. And I can trace that back, I think largely to not being able to relate to certain aspects of this movie. Sure. I mean, that makes complete sense. And I think that a movie that was debuting over 20 years ago, about a time period 20 years before that, I'm not saying that that's probably what caused that. But I think that for a lot of people who may not get into this type of movie, it stems from the fact that it's old. It's old by its production value. And it takes place during a time period that is literally 
40 years before now, <laughs> 40 years plus. And so that makes sense. Um, I know that it's considered a comedy, somewhat coming of age. Uh, we'll get into maybe that discussion in a little bit. But I know for me, watching this for the show, th- I wanted to watch it with a bit more purpose because like the title, I mean, you're sort of kind of confused and dazed. You're you're watching it at its very core for the entertainment value. And that in and of itself could be troublesome for some people. But for me, I tried to look at it through a lens of how these characters interacted. What do they have in common? Why is Linklater putting all these people together? They don't feel random, although they can seem that way. But in my mind, they don't feel like they're not without purpose, at least in the context of each other. And the word that came to mind for me was acceptance. I think that there's a lot to be said about characters in this who are accepting where they are, accepting the choices that they make, and accepting the world that they're going to be living in. We have two factions of folks, for the most part. We have incoming freshmen and incoming seniors. So there's a sense of newness that's happening. There's authority that's being thrust upon these seniors and their, I guess you could call it responsibility or irresponsibility to be seniors. And then there's these freshmen that are coming in who are trying to figure out where they fit into this. And there's a lot that goes on that helps kind of craft that narrative, maybe by force, some by choice. But for me, I think for everybody in the movie, at least the main characters, which you mentioned, there are like a dozen of them. So I fully admit, even in my rewatching of this, I'm probably going to get some names wrong. And (laughs) it's probably better to say the actor that played so-and-so or, you know, this person's character, that kind of thing, which would probably make a lot more sense. So just as a warning to our listeners, you might get a little bit of a combination of that from both of us. So forgive us. Hope you enjoy the conversation regardless. But I like that. I like the fact that we see this acceptance that takes place between guys like Pink and then Pickford and Mike, all these guys that are trying to figure out where to go next and really making the choice to accept what's next, even if they're in charge of it or if they're not in charge of it. So for me, that seemed the most fitting word coming out of this. One of the first thoughts that comes to mind when I watch this is the comparison to American Graffiti. I know that this was a movie covered under the connecting with the classics discussions that you and Don had. This is, and, and I'll admit American Graffiti is one of my favorite movies. Part of the reason is because it takes place in a time period that my, my dad grew up in and he can speak very first person to that time period. Everything that takes place in that movie, he completely tells me, yeah, that's accurate. This is what happened in downtown Little Rock when we were in high school. We would cruise the strip and we would literally drive around and do nothing. We'd end up at a drive-in eating food. I mean, we and, cruised Sherwood in the 90s. True, but <laughs> <laughs> we didn't cruise anything. We sped and we broke the law and we turned our headlights off down Mama Boulevard and tried to pass each other. This was a different kind of people. <laughs> we were we were civilized people acting like re- rebels, whereas I think in my dad's time period for American Graffiti and for this you have a group of individuals that are connected in some way, but they're mostly connected by this night. We're about to either leave for school or it's the beginning of summer. 
And so there's this like one night event that takes place. And what I wanted to open up by asking was, how does the ensemble cast, as big as it is, approach, how does it work for Dazed and Confused for you? Yeah, I would say that it is a very apt comparison, first of all, between this and American Graffiti, because that movie does happen over the course of one night, too, if I recall correctly. And they're both shot in a very documentary-like style, it feels like, where they're just following around different groups of people casually as they go about their evening in different situations, sometimes interacting with each other at various uh, positions and sometimes not. They're also really comparable, I think, in the era and the music, of course. It's funny because I don't love that one either. I liked it better because the drama in that one, I think, felt a little more important, like it had slightly more of a plot. And the ending is unlike anything we see in Dazed and Confused when it comes to seriousness. So I also think I could relate because of our history to the cruising the strip more than I could to smoking blunts and getting drunk at beach parties and some of the things that take place in Dazed and Confused. Now, I'm, and that's one scene. That's not like the whole movie is set on the beach, which I actually was surprised. I thought going into this that it was all set like on one party on the beach. I didn't know it was going to span the town and these different, you know, situations, different parties even. But I just didn't live in that world as much. And so it was harder for me. Um, when it comes to the cast, I think that was one of the highlights as far as my enjoyment of the film, but it wasn't necessarily because I thought everybody was fantastic in their role. I I mean, I put performances as a positive in my one word takeaway, but a lot of that was because I was busy picking them out going, oh my gosh, Ben Affleck is in this movie. Not because Ben Affleck is like, phenomenal in this movie. I mean, he's fine, he's not bad. But it was Ben Affleck. Or, oh, so that's, you know, Matthew McConaughey in this movie. And why is Joey Lauren Adams in this movie? And wait, that's Parker Posey in this movie. And, like, kind of all of these moments of surprise. I just didn't know they were there. And so noticing them was, like, the big fun thing for me. But when it comes to these ensemble casts, man, I think when you have this many characters, and, and it's, I'm gonna relate this, I've been on a 90s movies watching binge in the last week or so, and so I'm probably gonna make a lot of comparisons. I actually compare this perfectly, and I don't remember if I watched it the same night or back-to-back nights, with one of my absolute favorites from the 90s, Can't Hardly Wait. Both very similar in there, a night of transition, the last night of high school, the party, they're, you know, and then that one, they're kind of going to move on and go to college. And some of them are dealing with feelings of like, what does that mean? And how do I leave this life behind? And how do I progress? Also an ensemble cast. But I felt like each of the characters was given a plot and an arc that I was easily able to distinguish them. Whether it was by their costuming, their looks, the lighting, like all of those things helped me differentiate that ensemble cast more because they just were very distinct. And in this, I really felt like so many people blended together, Patrick, that I couldn't tell them apart, like until, you know, names weren't helping me. And I wasn't like, was that the guy that did the thing or was that the guy that did? I I just got really confused. So 
it kind of worked against the movie for me, unfortunately. Yeah, and I think it's important to understand that I'm projecting on what I think Linklater is trying to do. I don't I will I will make an assumption and say he's not trying to create depth with his characters. I think he's using characters to articulate what a night after the last day of school looks like in the 70s in Texas, in a small town in Texas. And if that's the case, I think he does a phenomenal job because it can reek of nostalgia. And going back to my comment about American Graffiti, that's what my dad enjoys a lot about that movie is the fact that it takes him back to this period where Wolfman Jack was on the radio and he was on everybody's radio. So you would hear it all over the place. And I think in some ways, Linklater is trying to recapture that. I think he's trying to say, this is what it was like for me. In a lot of ways, this was like a biopic for him or a biography, autobiographical experience for him because he was trying to capture a moment in time and use characters to support that, which can come across as cheap because you and I, I think, would both be in agreement that a story is only as good as its characters. And if you have, we talk about villains, how villains are either flat or round. Thanos is a very round villain because we feel empathy for him, which is unusual. But you also mentioned the, I'm, I'm looking at IMDb and I'm seeing no less than 12 names of people that had lines, people that actually had screen time, made a line or two. And I'm wondering, hmm, did I really care deeply about these, these guys? No, I didn't. At the end of the movie, I wasn't thinking, man, I'm so glad that Pink made the decision that he did. Or, man, I'm so glad to see, you know, Pickford do what he did or, or Slater or even Mike. The fact is we're getting a slice. We're getting a moment in time, which I think feels kind of magical because I'm not from the seventies. In some ways, I wish I was. I, we talked about this on one of our past episodes. Uh, where I feel like I was born in the wrong decade because I love the music of the 60s and 70s and unfortunate, not unfortunately, but I'm a product of the 80s and 90s. So I look back at this and it starts to get me thinking, these are people that were, as Matt McConaughey says, L-I-V-I-N. They were just living. And I don't think we should ask much more of them because the changes and the choices that they were making are not monumental. I mean, we're talking about the last day of school going into the summer as opposed to American Graffiti, which is the last night of summer before making a transition to college or the working world. So the, the stakes weren't high at all. And to me, that's okay because it leaves an opportunity for me as an audience to just enjoy the journey and not necessarily have to worry about or even care deeply, have empathy for these characters to think, man, I wonder what's going to happen next. I really don't care. I'm just glad that I got to hang out with them for a night. Days and Confused is considered a coming-of-age movie to a lot of people. And for me personally, I'm a little surprised by that, especially after this more recent viewing. I didn't see it that way because I think a lot of what you and I experience in some of the, the better coming-of-age movies like The Way Way Back, is a genuine character shift, at least by our main character, who I don't know that we have one. I think Pink might be the closest to that. But Mitch is the, who I was attached so, to the most. So, so Mitch would be another, yeah. And 
despite some of the acting <laughs> on Wiley Wiggins' part, I think he was a, a close second or even a leader in that regard. But because the movie began and ended with Pink in some regard, I kind of feel like he's the he's the bookend. What about you? Do you see this as a coming-of-age movie or having coming-of-age elements? Or do you feel like that's a bad interpretation of what this is? I think that the word or phrase coming of age is broad and that the people that call this coming of age are calling it that term because of what it is, even though it's not what you and I would consider coming of age. So I think it's coming of age in the sense that there are teenage characters who are all dealing with situations related to growing up and they're wrestling with their feelings a lot of them about moving on to a new experience or having to make more responsible decisions, which to me is what it means to come of age, is to deal with those things. But what we are more, I think, attuned to, what we enjoy more is the drama. And this has the lack of drama, and there's a lack of being deeply connected to that one character. And so it really holds it back from being a powerful change in any one character's life in a way that I think you and I would consider the best coming-of-age stories. So in a sense, I feel like it's sort of yes and no. I think it is because that's how people are defining their coming-of-age stories, but it's not what you and I think of as coming-of-age. Sure, and I think when it comes to coming-of-age stories, they tend to transcend eras and time periods. So Days takes place in the 1970s. I think it's the spring of 1976 or 77. Oh, 76, because the seniors are class of 77. And so in a lot of ways, this is considered a period piece. But I wondered for you, even with a lack of connection to the characters or the drama, do you think there's some universality in Days and Confused that makes it somewhat timeless as opposed to just saying, hey, Let's watch a movie about the 70s when you look at the events that take place. I don't like the 70s, okay? So almost to a rule, that era is an automatic turnoff to me. Okay. And I think I've said that on multiple podcasts. Anytime we do a movie in the 70s, it's sort of frustrating, and, and I feel bad about this. But this time, the soundtrack actually was pretty great for me. Um, and I think it's because it stayed more on the rock and roll side of the 70s, and I dig that. But the fashion and the hairstyles and the lingo, all that is stuff that I just don't find appealing. So I, I don't enjoy watching characters go through it because it's, like, not fun for me. Conversely, I've been revisiting a lot of these movies in the 90s, and I've realized that I'm very forgiving of them because I grew up with them, because I am attuned to that era. I lived it. I like it. I enjoy the music. Um, especially the high school ones. You know, that's a time period I experienced, whereas I didn't go to high school in the 70s, and I wouldn't want to go to high school in the 70s. So I connect to them. I connect to the music more. It's not something that I think I'm proud to admit, because in a way, I feel like this movie is a great example of one that gets a raw deal from me because I have an inherent bias. And... So do I think that it is true to the 70s? I feel like it is a really good depiction of what it probably was like in the 70s. And I want nothing to do with the 70s. And so I don't want anything to do with the stories of the 70s, if that makes sense. And it just, it's, it kind of sucks, but it is what it is. Right. And 
And I can see where that would be a turnoff for you and how that would disconnect you just by default. And I'm going to say this very candidly. Up until recently, horror movies by default were my turnoff. And I, I don't know if I admit, admitted this on the show at one point, but I, I remember thinking a horror movie is automatically going to be a three or maybe a two and a half because I don't care for the genre. And I'm grateful for the show and for what you've kind of brought into my world in terms of, hey, try this one. Hey, try that because of what you know about me and things like the Babadook or Blair Witch or The Shining, movies that I hold in high regard. I hold them that way because of more reasons than just because they scare me to death. Also, they don't have jump scares for the most part, but you know, that's neither here nor there. And so I get that. I get the fact that there's always going to be bias. I like the seventies. I think it's groovy man. In fact, I think the word man was used over 200 times as some of the IMDb trivia says to a point where it got really frustrating. So there's a lot of over seventiesness that I think happens. And when you're dealing with a mind like Richard Linklater, who is personally attached to that time period, you're probably going to get an overabundance of that kind of thing. So I look at this time period and I enjoy it, but I tried to separate myself and see if there was anything about it that felt timeless. And I think for me, it has to do with the fact that you have this group of people, this group of friends who connect in some way, shape or form in different ways. And what I like about Dazed and Confused is that you have pockets of relationships that overlap. So there are established relationships early on. There's like trios of, of friends and eventually they connect via a conversation or a, a fight or some kind of just event, either a beer bust or body at the moon tower, you know, something like that. And so what we get is more common ground that takes place. In fact, one of the things I really, really like about this movie is how you have these two central senior characters befriending their freshman counterparts. What I feel like are their kind of surrogate younger brother, younger sister. And that appealed to me because I think that that's a very real thing that still happens today where you have, when I was a freshman or a sophomore in high school, I thought it was so fantastic to be friends with a senior and have a senior sign my yearbook as inappropriate as some of the things they said were, but it, but it felt like you were connected to history. It felt like you were connected to what you were eventually going to be. And high school was so far removed for me at this point. I have no idea if I did that to a sophomore before. I feel like we did that in our youth group. Like we had, we were friends with the class of 99. And I, I think that we joked about how the odd years were the ones with the cool kids and the even years were, were not so much. Probably because I was trying to date the freshman. This is true. This is probably a true statement. The, the girls. You actually are nailing it though. I think one of the people that was in that younger group was Ben's younger brother. And so that what you're talking about is one of the things I did like about the movie is that overlap. And specifically because I was connected to Mitch the most throughout this whole story was his relationship with his sister. And I would have loved more of them. I, again, like I just wanted more in the drama. I wanted more in the arcs and the story and the plot. But I really liked the idea of she's a senior, she's a, or she's at this party, and now her baby brother shows up. Like now he's part of this club, and there's a great moment of them on the beach where she's like, "I guess I got to get used to you being at the social function." And 
kind of the banter between the two of them. And she's talking about how it's bullshit that he gets to stay out later than she did, you know, and we're, and that's a very real thing that I think people with brothers and sisters probably have experienced. I was an only child, but I'm sure you went through this where your brother got to do stuff that you didn't get to do because he broke the mold. Like he learned and his parent, your parents learned from what he experienced. And now it's not okay for Patrick because Chris messed it up or something. And there's a great line by him where actually he tells her, yeah, well, don't take it easy. Tell mom, don't tell mom to take it easy on me. And I think it's great because it calls back to a clear reference where Mitch is upset because earlier when he was being hazed, he finds out that they took it easy on him because of his sister being in the club, you know, being someone that they knew. And he didn't want that to your point. He wanted to be accepted equally like everybody else. He wanted to go through it essentially whatever it was so that he wouldn't have special treatment. And so I love that their relationship is part of this intermingling like you're talking about where they, and and it's brief. I mean, they just, they show up in pockets. I think there's like two scenes with him and her at the same place, but I did enjoy those quite a bit. I think it had the most growth because we got to see as Mitch being one of the main characters that we follow throughout the movie, watching him and watching his sister interact with each other, but also with their selective groups, there's an advancement of their relationship. And I think that's probably the most depth that we'll get from those relationships because nobody else really has that kind of movement. We have folks that make decisions, but we don't see necessarily any like growth movement from that. Maybe we're not meant to because their growth will happen during the summer or when they go off to college or when they start their senior years or whatever it is. But I agree. I think Mitch's relationship with his sister is one where I relate to that. I was four years behind my brother and I intentionally did not go to the high school that he did because I didn't want to be so-and-so's little brother. I wanted to carve my own path. And ironically, it was when I got into college that he and I started getting a little bit closer because we had that in common. And then we got more in common because we both got married and we got more in common because we are both dads. And there's something very cool about reconnecting with someone that is that far removed for you in age because you don't share that common experience. And so that moment where we get to see Mitch and his sister sharing that common experience is is wonderful because now it's not like they're going to have something to talk about, but they have something to experience where a fight that breaks out, they both know what that's about, what that's what what goes on there, as opposed to Mitch hearing about this fight that happened at the moon tower that is exclusively not involved. You know, he's not able to be involved with now he's able to do that. Um, so I think that's pretty fantastic. Now there is a lot of hazing throughout this film from the seniors to the freshmen. Is this something that you've ever experienced yourself? And do you think there are any positives to hazing or is it ever just a negative thing? Well, this is where I can relate. So mostly unrelatable, but this, part of the film is something that I've experienced. It it reminds me of several things, actually. One, specifically, and I probably the most connective, is the North Little Rock High School. I almost said our senior-junior tradition, but yeah, you're shaking your head because you didn't go to that school with me. Um, And what we used to do is the incoming senior class each year would go out the night before school was starting, and they would toilet paper the houses of the incoming junior class. And there were these huge caravans of cars that would drive around and just 
cause all kinds of chaos until up in about midnight. And then the police would be like, all right, it's time to go home. And people would disperse. That's what this kind of reminded me of. This idea of high school hazing. Outside of that, it was a little surprising because I was like, why are they hazing freshmen in the high school? Like it, it, the senior to, to freshman hazing felt a little hardcore, honestly, for what they were doing or what they were trying to get across point wise. And in a way, it almost made me feel like the film glorified it. And I wondered if it ever condemned it. It also brought back memories of bad hazing to me and, and things that I've experienced in that negative way. And that is like getting covered in condiments and flour. So that reminds me of a hazing I experienced when we did what we called the crossing the line ceremony in the Navy. And that's when you go across the equator and you get to uh, become a shellback as you know, someone who goes through this long process. And it's literally hours long of hazing, of you know, sticking your head in pancakes in water in a trough that's, that's handmade. It's just a bunch of like old eggs and pancakes in a bunch of water and you have to stick your face in it and things like that and getting fire hose and having to crawl across the gr- ground and it, it just all kinds of kind of ridiculous stuff that it's what hazing is all about. It's all based on that idea of like, we went through this and so now you're going to go through this and then somehow that's going to make us connected. We're going to feel like we belong together because we experienced some some trauma together. And I did this as well with um, Chief Petty Officer Initiation. There was a huge history of that in the Navy, especially where when you became a Chief Petty Officer, you had to go through this ceremony that was, it used to be unregulated and really bad. Uh, by the time I got to go through it, it was a little bit more controlled, but even then, it was a rite of passage, and I gotta admit, when I came out on the other side, the feeling of belonging, the feeling of pride, of accomplishment, of being put through such a test and such craziness, only to come out on the other side and have that same person that was screaming at me five seconds later calling me their brother, or in this case, the person that was paddling me, buying me a beer, that felt amazing. But I can't help but think, you know, in this movie... It's really shown in that way of it's a it's an awful display of power and a way to control others. And I, I just it did not sit well with me at all. And I don't know if that's just because of my personal experiences or if that's something that a viewer who may not have experienced something like that would pick up on. And I, so I wondered how it sat with you because I was pretty torn on it. Like it was entertaining to watch for a while. But then I was like, man. I, I need this movie to like condemn this instead of treating it like it's kind of just fine. Well, you're not going to get that. And for two reasons. One, there's a comment made by, I think it's, uh, yeah, it's not going to happen. Forget it. Um, by our guy with the glasses, um, who, who gets proposed to the sensible one, I guess you could say, or maybe it's, <laughs> I don't know who it is. Anyway, there's a conversation that takes place during the female hazing. And one of the guys says, it's amazing to me that it seems like the community just celebrates this because there's nobody around. 
This is apparently taking place either in the back of the school parking lot or somewhere else. I can't remember. But there is virtually no adult interaction or adult condemnation of this stuff outside of the parents of the guy who throws the party or the mom. And the teacher, the junior high teacher, who is basically like, well, good luck. They're going to get you. Right. And I think that each one has – I think what this movie does is it just – it really amplifies the distance that is felt between teenagers and their parents or teenagers and adults. And I think that goes back to what we talked about, about how this isn't a movie that's about exploring characters and their relationships with each other and with others, but it explores really the idea of how a high school student felt in this time period, in this place. And again, I think that's where it succeeded. To answer your question about the hazing, Morally speaking, I think it's awful. Um, I think when you have somebody like O'Banion who gets, who has the ability and has the power to be able to flunk in order to be able to do this again, it's border, it's dangerous is what it is. I mean, at some point it just, it's, it's wrong. But the frustrating thing I have about that is the fact that it feels a little inconsistent. But when Mitch and his friends get him back, which I think is great. It's one of my favorite scenes when they, you know, when he just blows up because he's gotten his comeuppance. He walks over and he starts getting ready to attack Mitch. In no part of that moment do, do any of the other seniors stand in Mitch's way, get in front of him to defend him. And that tells me, wait a minute, is this part of the hazing? Is this part of the rite of passage that is a big thing in this movie where you're not going to get protected by your senior friends now, even though they invited you out for a beer and they want you to hang out and they're trying to be your, be your friend. That told me something and maybe it was unintentional, but it told me that really the friendships aren't there yet. It's really more of a, Hey, I busted you and now you get a beer because you didn't complain about it. Or it's almost like you've passed the test, but you're not really in the brotherhood yet. And maybe it's okay because, you know, Mitch is, two hours into these relationships. But to me, I thought he and his friends did something pretty incredible. They stood up to this senior part two, this double senior at this point did that. I would at least expect guys like pink and those were then those were that were there to at least stand and say, Hey man, back off, back off. Now it didn't have to do that. You know, his embarrassment really kind of pushed him away and then we don't see him again. But I was a little disappointed in that. I don't feel like that was, If it was authentic, it showed the authenticity of how shallow those relationships could be, at least not without any earned merit at that point. And that's where I'm going with this is because I feel like that was my biggest takeaway was that throughout the movie, it was highlighting almost the worst of us and the worst in people in that era and in that time period. I didn't see any balancing of really strong redemptive acts from characters that would have made me feel like, okay, here's a good, you know, here's some things that we did back in the day that weren't so great. And here's some things where we did that maybe were some were you know, good and, and caring and, and, and helpful to the next generation. I didn't see, I didn't see anything like that. Really. You're right. I didn't see anything either. And I didn't really expect it to be honest because of the tone and because of the way in which the, the movie plays itself out. 
having this kind of slice of life moment for 12 hours, we got what we got. And I wish we had more of that. To me, that would have made a more substantial narrative to show that we aren't just looking at folks that want to get high and get stoned and just hang out. But at the same time, it's reflective of, I think, the attitudes of that time period where there, I think this is where the dialogue becomes really interesting. There's a moment right before, right when school lets out where the history teacher makes some comment about, this is 1976, so it's the centennial birthday of the, of America, and she makes some comment about how when they, when you guys go out and celebrate, just know what you're celebrating. A bunch of, you know, old fat white dudes who are, you know, basically giving themselves all this credit. And somebody, I think there's a, there's a guy that yells, you got it, you know it. And there's an attitude about this time period. In fact, there's a comment that said at the moon tower party where someone says, I feel like we're kind of just gliding through this decade. Like I feel like every other decade is the better decade. So the sixties were great. The seventies obviously suck, which means the eighties are probably going to be radical. And of course that's probably a little tongue in cheek, but everything that we've seen up to that point almost feels like with the exception of a few moments, it feels like they're just kind of walking through things. There's really not a lot of motivation to change. There's not a lot of motivation to, to move forward. And so it makes those moments like Pink's decision to not sign the permission slip and Mitch's decision to get O'Banion back and, and Mike's decision to essentially defend himself or pick a fight. Those moments that I feel like were redemptive. They felt like rites of passage, which I, again, I think the movie is just riddled with throughout these rites of passage. I think a lot of these characters go through them in some small way. Um, something else that I noticed with regards to the hazing is that it's not just limited to a tradition. There's always an a-hole that's going to take it above and beyond. And O'Banion represents the guy's side. I think it's Siobhan who represented re- represents it on the girl's side where she's aerating these girls and she goes up to uh, – What's her name at the at the party while she's talking to dude? See, this is how funny it's gonna get. <laughs> Listeners, we apologize. And she basically tells her to air raid, and the guy's like, "No, you're not gonna air raid. You know, she's with me." And she says, "That's it. I'm gonna make the next year of your life a living hell." And there's part of that that I connect with because I've been around those people who, if you say the wrong thing or if you don't do the right thing, if you don't give in to the bullying, you're now a target. And you have a target on your back over however long this person wants to to hold that. And it's kind of scary. I kind of felt bad. I was like, okay, well, is she going to, because she made that decision, is he going to defend her? Is this next year going to be about her hiding in the bathroom away from this girl? Or is their relationship going to be enough where he's standing up for her? I don't know. And those are parts that kind of, I don't know if they rubbed me the wrong way or if they just felt incomplete because I think Linklater does that. He puts little pockets of what could be without necessarily fleshing them out. Instead of keeping it surface level, he has these moments of depth, but they don't necessarily pay themselves off. Yes, that's right. And that's, I think that's part of just that unconnecting nature for me where I I just, it's harder for me to connect to that. I need, I think the full picture, the full robust arcs, but you did mention something that I, I wanted to go back to. And that's Pink or Randall, whatever his name is. And the whole 
constant thread from the very beginning of the movie all the way to the end of the movie. The one thing that seems to be like the biggest plot point that is going on is, is he going to sign this agreement that his coach wants him to sign? That essentially says, I agree to not do drugs and not drink alcohol over the summer. Is, am I understanding that correctly? Like that's what he's agreeing to do in order to get himself ready for football season. And he's the quarterback, I think, of course. I had a problem with this because in the end, he doesn't sign it. And I feel like the movie and the tone of the movie is celebrating his independent decision-making and his ability to L-I-V-I-N and choose for himself what he wants to do and not what somebody else wants him to do. When in reality, Patrick, I side with the coach. The coach is asking him to make a commitment to his teammates. And one of his teammates even tells him that. He's like, this is all about like us. And if we're going to prepare as we need to, and we're going to be in the best position to go out next year and make state, like we need to do this. And Randall's defiant and rebellious about it to the point like, you're not going to control me. And I feel like the movie is like championing his choice. I, I, I don't know if it is or not, but like maybe I didn't like it at all because it made me feel like the coach was portrayed in a way that he was the bad guy. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like, wh- how is the coach the bad guy? I mean, I don't care if you show Randall resisting it, but don't show it as he's making the best choice. He's not. He's making a terrible choice and a very selfish choice. And it needs to be displayed in that way for me to think it's realistic, I guess. I, I don't know. I, it bothered me. So I, I think we need to take into account the setting where this takes place. This is not Southern California, which is where a lot of our teen movies take place. This is Texas, man. Texas in the 70s. And what you and I both know about Texas is people loved them some football. I mean, Texas football is huge, like equally as huge as college football. Football, football, football is what Texas is known for. And as I was watching this, I I agree with you fundamentally. I think what Pink is doing for his team is letting them down. He's the quarterback. And he needs to be a leader. But I also have to side with him to a degree because while I don't agree with the decision, I agree with the form of integrity that he's taking. Because I think what he sees here is is all this, is this all I am? Is just a quarterback? Just an asset that's going to get us to state? And I'll tell you what, that idea has been shown in a lot of movies dealing with um, high school sports around certain people who don't want somebody else's life. And I think in a lot of ways, this this articulates a little bit more of what we see in Varsity Blues, where we have a character who does not want to be that center point anymore. Now, the motivation is different, but Pink realizes, and he says it on the football field, I don't want this to be me calling this the best, the best years of my life. Like I think he sees a bigger picture and what he sees as I'm not signing the pledge, not because I'm trying to let my team down or because I'm trying to make a statement about, you know, my life and how I want to live it. But I think what he's saying is that he, in some ways I feel like he's tired. I think he's tired of living up to some expectation. And 
Maybe he wants more. I don't know. I think it's a combination of things. I think it's part of the fact that he doesn't want to be under the authority of folks, which is very much a teen mindset. But I think in some ways it's kind of manipulative too, because he understands the magnitude of his importance. It also speaks to probably the misguided depth of what we see these friendships as, where it, it tells us that he might care about his friends, but not enough to necessarily be completely selfless. And that's a bad message. I agree with that. But I also understand it. And I think it totally fits with his journey. Okay, I guess. I just I don't understand why people enjoy watching that. Like, why do we want to watch and enjoy watching a character who is going to end the movie in a place of selfishness? He says, I might play ball, but I'll never sign that. Like, to me, that is awful. Like, no, you're not going to play ball. And he says, getting Aerosmith tickets is the most important thing that I'm going to do this summer. Mm -hmm. Like... Dude, you're off the team. I'm sorry, but no, that's not how sports works. You don't have to make it your life. You don't have to be the only thing that defines you. But there is a commitment that is involved, and it involves other people, and it involves preparation. If the least of the things you're being asked to do is to keep your body in good shape so that you can come into the the season ready to go to lead that team because you are the leader in that position, then you need to do it. And I just, I, I'm sorry, I just can't stand it. It just drove me nuts. I, I had to rant for a second because I was like, no, the Pickford is not the bad guy. Pickford's the good guy. Like he is actually trying to help the kid and he's being blown off as the dumb adult who wants you to, you know, control you by taking away your fun. Oh, it just, it just rubbed me so wrong. Yeah, I, I, if, I, if he would have made a different decision in the end, I'd have been fine with it, but he but didn't. What, but what decision? Giving in? Because that was, look, the thing is, I think the message was clear based off of what we saw from him is that he did not want to be under the thumb of this coach and being told what to do and what not to do. Then don't and, play football, Patrick. That's my and point. And he doesn't. That's the thing is he doesn't. Then he quit the team. He no, he doesn't. He says, yes, I he... might play ball, but I won't nope. sign that agreement. No, nope. no, nope. clearly that's not. No, because at the very end, he's talking to his buddy right before he gets in the car to go get Aerosmith tickets. Okay. And his friend says, so that's it? He goes, yeah. He says, all right. Oh, so that's even better. So we're going to quit our team-related sports so we can do drugs and drink. I think that's part of it. I don't think he's quitting to do drugs and party and drink. I think he's quitting because he's done with being authority. authority. Yeah, because look, clearly what Pink wants is what Pink wants right now. He's not looking at the future. Do you think he's going to college? Based on what you saw in this movie, do you think Pink is has aspirations about going to school somewhere? No, and he's exactly. throwing away his athletic ability to go to school somewhere. And consistent, I think the decision he made at the end was very consistent with his character. I don't agree with it. I think it's a dumb decision because for West or for Texas football in general, that's your ticket. And if he wanted to get out, if the movie centered around him wanting to just get out and make more mention of the fact that he didn't want these years to be the best years of his life, that's a great line, but it wasn't supported enough for me to say, okay, well, what do you want to do? What do you want to do with your life? Instead of just being kind of an, a brooding teenager who's like, well, no, I just don't want to be under the authority. That's where I fundamentally disagree with him as a character. But I don't think it was inconsistent with what we saw of him throughout the movie. I never expected him to go to college at all or to do anything. I thought he's going to make his senior year his by whatever means he can, whether it's on the football team or not. That's fair. No, I, I, I don't disagree with you at all in that at, at all. You're right. It is very consistent. 
My point is, I don't understand the appeal of watching a movie that ends that way with a character that is going to be consistent in that way. Like, there's no arc. There's no progression. There's no, wow, he got, then again, to the coming of age, like, where's the, I'm getting better. I'm learning a lesson. It's not there. Mm-hmm. To you're, me. Exactly, you're exactly right. It's not there. And so this becomes essentially a movie that makes people laugh. And a movie that is fun to enjoy because of that journey rather than the destination. I don't feel more satisfied after watching it because I care about these characters. I feel satisfied because of the way it made me feel from a laughing standpoint, from a humorous standpoint. Well, that's good because I want to know what the heck is so funny about it, too, (laughs) at some point. I think that when you take a movie like this, and this is only my take, I'm not going to speak for the other people that enjoy this. Um, if you're in our Facebook group, we would love to hear what you thought, like what your thoughts are on why you enjoy this movie. Is it because of the comedy or, or whatnot? Cause I personally would love to see and hear what, what Don Shanahan thinks. I know that he loves this movie and I'd love to see why that is. But for me personally, I think it's because I don't connect directly to the time period. I connect to the place, the small townness. You and I are, we're from Little Rock. Little Rock metro area, if you want to call it. Right now, I'm in Tampa, Florida, and I'm in one small part of Tampa, and I'm looking out over my window right now, and I'm seeing this is a huge city. Little Rock is small by comparison. It's not a small town necessarily like Rosebud or even you know Arkadelphia, but when you see how people are with each other, when you see that familiarity, I think what you have are almost like over stereotyped versions of the kind of person that you're familiar with. Like I knew a pink. We all know that guy in high school that is just the big man on on campus. For us in the nerd drama world, it was Will Trice and it was Jeff Nichols. Those were the guys that were kind of kings of the drama world. They weren't the athletes necessarily, but then there were those other guys that were the athletes who had stature. And when you take those characters that we know from our own personal experience and you put pretty good dialogue with them and you see kind of an over-the-top version of them, it really makes for myself an entertaining watch because there are it's almost like being sarcastic. There's like pockets of truth that exist in these in these lines and in these characters. And for me, when I can quote them, which obviously creates that sense of connection with other people, or when I can laugh at some of the dialogue, even when I see some of the moments that feel a little bit heartfelt and that I connect with, I think that's why I enjoy this as much as I do. Now, I will say that this viewing kind of took my rating down a notch. And I think that has to do with the fact that I've enjoyed a lot more substantial coming of age movies like the way way back that really take the ideas that I enjoyed that are hinted at in a movie like this and elevate them to a level that I connect with more. Okay. Well, that makes sense. And I, I get that. It's, it's just definitely not me. I think that comedy really is the most personal genres. And if something doesn't work for a person, it doesn't work all the way. There's not a lot of middle ground. It's either funny or it isn't. It's not, in the middle. And to an extent, horror is kind of like that too. Like it's either scary or it isn't. You, you, you're one or the other. 
Um, drama and action and romance, I feel like there's a more acceptable middle ground in those. And so when comedy, the goal, whether it's a whole film or just moments and scenes in a film, the only goal is really to try and make you laugh. That's it. And it's difficult to make that a universal thing. A member of the group, uh, Eric Scorsese, actually said this, and I completely agree with him. He said he enjoys hybrids rather than straight comedies, action comedy, horror comedy, um, and, and I do too. And I think for me, even more so, I enjoy comedy that is relatable to a time period of my life. And those are the ones that I can connect with, and therefore then I find it more funny. Whereas for me, like watching these guys in a different era, it just didn't click. And it might for you. But it doesn't for me. And so it's it's definitely that, like I said, it's just so personal. It's hard to make something that works for everybody. Exactly. And the interesting thing psychologically about comedy is the idea of laughing is one of the two most vulnerable expressions that a person has. The way they laugh. So a person's laugh is very unique to them. Unless, you know, hereditarily speaking, you sound like your dad, which I do sometimes. Uh, but also the ways in which they they cry, those two things and the way in which you get evoked to do those things come from a place of personal experience. And when I watch a movie that is not only quotable, but something that I can what I love doing, making impressions, that to me makes it personal. I mean, it's no secret that that Matthew McConaughey's character is quoted probably more than anything else in this movie. But the fact is, I enjoy quoting it. I enjoy impersonating Matthew McConaughey. And that's a personal reason why I enjoy this movie is I love seeing how he articulates his body, how he's able to say, I'm the cool guy and I'm comfortable in my own skin. All right, all right, all right. So I think that when it comes down to comedy, having that personal connection does make or break a person's personal experience. It's why I don't like the raunch comedy stuff because it just makes me feel gross. It's why I don't necessarily care for spoofs to an extent, although there's a place in my life for movies like UHF. And I think that that's more about nostalgia than anything else. It's not the kind of comedy that I would want to write. I prefer more situational comedy. Um, it's why I enjoy shows like Superstore and The Office is because dialogue and the way in which dialogue is delivered and how people react to it, it's less about physical comedy. It's less about being obnoxious like Naked Gun stuff, and it's not about raunch. It's really more about the effect that a line has and the way it makes you feel when you laugh at it. So um, I, I definitely agree with that. Now, I'm assuming based on our conversation that as we move into our connecting points, there's probably only going to be one connecting point, and it's only going to come from me. Am I pretty close on that? I mean, that's a pretty bold guess, but yeah, maybe. <laughs> I, it, listen, there is one scene that I liked, but – well, no, there's more than one scene that I liked. That came out very wrong. I quite like the scene where Mitch comes home after it being alluded to earlier from his sister and his mom catches him, just like she tells him is going to happen. And she tells him, you get one get-out-of-jail-free card, but next time you come in at sunrise, we've got problems. I thought that it was a good way to display some parenting uh, in this movie in a, in a very quick moment, just to show this is me giving you a little bit of a leash uh, because I believe that you're better and this is not going to be habitual. I'm going to trust you until you break that 
multiple times and really show me that something's wrong. I just thought it was a really cute, nice scene and it and relatable. It reminded me of my mom. Reminded me of my parents and interactions I've had with them. And so because I could relate to that, it was a really sweet little moment. But overall, Patrick, no. I went through this entire movie and I it is the most just blase thing for me. I don't remember what happened throughout completely and I definitely didn't have moments that stick out to me in an emotional sense. Well, I did, and um, there weren't many, but the one moment that always stands out to me, the one moment that makes me feel both frustrated and, I don't know, other words that are negative, <laughs> is Mike's confrontation with Clint. And just to set the stage, it actually takes place between a couple of different scenes, so I kind of thread them all together. But Mike's coming down, and he makes a comment about somebody's token reefer, and this bad boy Clint starts on him and is apparently really offended. Like, yeah, of course I'm smoking, but yo, you think I'm a pothead? You think, and it's just, it's very aggressive. He's obviously drunk and you see, you see Mike, who's just like, Hey, Hey, I'm, I'm not trying to start anything. And it gets broken up. And there's a conversation that Mike has with his friends afterwards where he's basically saying he's, he, he can't stop thinking about it. He can't just let it go. Aaron, I've had those moments where I've been humiliated, where I've felt like I want to do something. And in my head, I'm like going through all these scenarios of like, how can I make this happen where I don't get my butt kicked and it feels like I'm doing something good. And he is going through that situation. He is basically saying, okay, here's what I can do. And he goes to this great logical sequence. Like most fights get broken up within the first couple of minutes anyway. So if I get the first punch in and just defend myself, you know, the herd's naturally going to do blah, 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 blah. And of course that's not what happens. And it plays itself off as a pretty funny scene, although very sad. He pours the beer on Clint. And I'm like, yeah, I would love to do that. Like, I wanted to pour the beer on Clint for him because that's that was teenage me wanting to be like, man, that's a bold step. And then he punches him. And then, of course, nobody steps in, which, again, is a frustrating thing on my that I had. It's the same thing how I felt with obeying and going after Mitch and nobody stepping in. And then eventually it gets broken up. And then to watch Mike walk away or get kind of carried away or support whatever the word is, he is even more humiliated. Now, the silver lining here is that he has these battle scars and he's talking to his friend and he's like, you know, it's not too bad. Does it feel like I, you know, does it feel like I got a couple of punches in? And she's like, yeah, 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 yeah. And so again, it plays itself off somewhat comedically, but I've been in that situation where I've wanted to attack. I've wanted to get my revenge. And sadly, I've never, there are more times than not that I didn't do that where I just, I let it go and I felt bullied and I felt emotionally just completely humiliated there. And, and I can relate to that. I can relate to him. I wish that we got to see some resolution with him, but like most of these characters, we don't, we get to see kind of a, Okay, it's now summer. Whatever happens, happens. Let's go eat our pancakes and let's, you know, put our headphones on and go to sleep while being massively drunk. But I think that moment for me was one that I always tend to connect with because of the personal experience I had growing up. And I wasn't bullied a lot, but I had enough of those situations come about where it, it, it did affect me for a while. 
Well, that makes sense. And I, I can totally understand why that's a powerful connecting point. I mean, that's what the, that's what it's all about, right? That's what we do the connecting point for. Um, and that is a great example of a personal one. And so I appreciate that. I mean, I, if you're thinking about that during that scene, it's hard not to get kind of worked up. We just sure. see it play out. Yeah. Well, that wraps up another episode of Feeling Film. Uh, be sure to keep listening later this week as we are firing off our June donor pick, Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl, as well as some great bonus content uh, for our patron subscribers. And then we will head back to the theater where we will give our spoiler-filled discussion on Toy Story 4, bringing on Colesse Davis to join us for that conversation. So you won't want to miss that. Aaron, thank you for a great conversation, and we'll talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at FeelinFilm, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling filmed.